you can measure anything, the podcast shares conversations to help you clarify unclear concepts so that you can develop better measures that lead to better decisions. Let's get started. Carly Simon talked about anticipation in her famous song. She said, anticipation, it's making me late. It's keeping me way, yay, 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 tin. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward. We can observe someone waiting. But is everyone who is waiting anticipating something? What are the thoughts? What are the feelings? What are the actions associated with that? For example, in education, we hear the term anticipatory set. So how do we know that the anticipatory set is having the intended effect? What do you want to accomplish when we want students to anticipate the lesson that's coming? How do we know we got there? How do we measure that? Anticipation is the topic of our discussion today. Welcome to our first You Can Measure Anything, the podcast. I'm Nicole Aliotto, CEO of Ala Breve Consulting, and I'm joined today by the Ala Breve team. We have Michelle Wiecek. Hi, everyone. We also have Nishay Lowe. Hey. <laughs> there she is. And Tommy Hodges. Uh, great to be here. All right, team. Happy to have you all here for our first episode. And you all have something in common. You are all doctoral students. So I'm going to guess that you have some experience with anticipation. So can you tell me a time when maybe during your doctoral program, you have anticipated something? Sure. So um, the last time I really felt anticipation that really sticks with me is my first math class as a doctoral student. It was on statistics. And up until that point, it had been maybe 10 years since I had taken a formal math class, but I'd been learning statistics on my own for two or three years at that point. And it was the night of class. And on my way over there, my heart is racing, partially <laughs> because the syllabus was a bit uh cold or impersonal and I just I had this uh, fear that I was going to come sit down in class and that the math was going to overwhelm me I wouldn't know how to do any of the formulas and so uh that's that's the that's my story or the last time I felt a great deal of anticipation you're talking about you, you were, your heart was racing a little bit it was uh that that syllabus was was your trigger for that anticipation I was sweating I didn't know I didn't know if I was going to come in there and be called out as a math imposter for me, I think that uh, once you get to the second year or so of your doctoral program and you start getting ready to start talking about your research or get your elevator pitch together and you start talking to more and more people about it, the feedback or the AKA constructive criticism uh, where they rip your whole world, world apart. You spent all, <laughs> all this time reading literature, you put together a proposal and all these things. You think you have a great idea and every single person you talk to just shreds it to pieces. <laughs> every single person shreds it to pieces is that a common experience <laughs> well, well and shred shred it with love you know a lot of it is valid but um i just anticipated like the let me have it at the, at the end of my 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 spiel i'm like all right let's go <laughs> <Gotcha. I'm ready. laughs> 
<laughs> the let me have it reaction. Okay. How about you, Michelle? Nache and Tommy's were like one time or past experiences. I anticipate almost every single day in my <laughs> doctoral program, whether it's grades or just like anticipating. I, I really do anticipate grades. I'm like, when is my grade going to come out? You know, did I do enough work? So there's that factor. And then I'm, you know, planning for classes because I'm the my first year doctoral student. So I'm still going through the classes and then I have to, you know, anticipate all these deadlines, you know, from discussion posts, to quizzes, to finals, to projects, to mm-hmm. assignments. Mm-hmm. So I'm just constantly anticipating things. Um, mm-hmm. I would say less, it's less fear-based and it's more preparing for or expecting something to come. What's coming next? All the stuff. <laughs> It sounds like when, from Tommy's perspective, it was a lot of this kind of emotional side of the anticipation with the the heart rate and the sweat, you know, you're having this you know, biological reaction to your emotions. Whereas what I'm hearing from Nishay and Michelle, where it sounds a little bit, a little bit more cognitive, like things are going through your mind, like, okay, let me have it. Or, you know, what am I going to be doing next? Is, is that more common for you? Or do you actually experience anticipation in both ways, but under different contexts? Sure. No, I think I probably experience anticipation both ways. With cognitive anticipation, when it's just in my head, that is something I can always seem to prepare myself uh, out of that, you know, if I'm that worried about it, it actually motivates me to put in the effort to be prepared and be ready to, to face whatever it is that I'm anticipating. Um, I guess in this instance, I felt, although I had done all this preparation, um, and it turns out in hindsight, it was fine. Um, whatever it was, maybe it was math anxiety, whatever it was about going to that class, um, really, yeah, it invoked that, that whole biological reaction in me, physiological reaction. I like how when we asked or when Nicole asked about memory, you thought of the fear-based emotional memory, which is like most people, when they think about memories, they always think about, you know, the emotional ones. And that's because we actually encode it faster and it stays with us longer because it's like a different process in memory, which is probably why you were like fear, math. That's what I anticipated. As so we're just learning like- a lot about each other in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going back around to some of your examples. I didn't hear anything that was necessarily a positive anticipation of something. It was more of neutral to negative anticipation. When we when you reflect back, maybe in some of those, you know, encoded emotions or just some of our thoughts, were there experiences? Maybe it might not actually be in your doctoral program. Maybe I should widen the lens a little bit. I anticipate being accepted in a journal and that is, ah. you know, exciting. Okay. Cause we're seeing kind of an excitement anticipation. Michelle, you're like, not at all, but is there something well, that comes to mind? Uh, yeah, I was, I anticipated, um, you know, passing my proposal defense and, uh, Right now, it's more of the dreadful anticipation, but there are little pockets where it's like, I'm going through this now, but I'm going through this to get to my final defense, like those types of anticipations, like it could be back and forth. 
What do you think tipped the scales in those um, situations? Because I'm thinking about preparation for a defense or a presentation, you know, for anyone or, you know, in the case of, you know, Michelle and the journals and and getting something published, you know, there's probably a time when things were in that more uh, negative anticipation, maybe when your heart rate was going up or you were getting those negative thoughts. And when does that scale tip to be a more positive and enthusiastic, excited level of anticipation well last time i went skiing it was actually the first time i've ever gone i'm a georgia boy and we had a friend take us out to colorado and she said oh you know we'll go to the medium i think they're called the blue diamonds i don't know what oh they're oh she's boy. like yeah we'll go to these they'll be fine they're easy uh for her they're easy and of course at the top <laughs> of the hill it's it's the scariest thing on earth to to be on skis because they don't they don't dig into the ground very well but now <laughs> look now that i've done it i've actually like the first day that it was over, the first successful day, I was dreaming about skiing. And now I really actually want to go back and ski again. Skiing. So in, in that case, you kind of, you, the scale tip for you is kind of moving from the unknown to somewhat known, not necessarily completely known, but maybe it was a little bit more familiarity. So it wasn't just going into the void of what should I be expecting at this point? Yeah, it's fun. If, if you get an easy enough hill, it's really fun. So maybe that was the, maybe that's what changed. Except you were in Colorado, which has the nice powdery snow until you are in the East coast, you know, <laughs> where it's just ice and you're like, how do I even stop on ice? Yeah. I don't, I just don't even know how to stop period. So it doesn't matter where I would be. That's for I sure. I learned you have to just split, but going back to that <laughs> comment, I want to say that half of it is also trusting yourself too. So when you're skiing, I noticed like I got more comfortable when I was like, okay, I am in control of what's going on. I know how to stop. I know how to slow down. I know how to turn. And once you have that trust in yourself, I think it also goes into the the known versus unknown. I think then you're able to it goes into a more positive experience. Yeah. Sometimes I think about um, travel experiences. You know, I, I still get that anticipation for travel, even if it's a, a, a positive, maybe it's more vacation than business, but there's always that set level of anticipation. And I think the, the biology is sometimes the same, you know, still getting that same heart rate, still getting some of those questions about what's going to happen. Um, you know, how do, how do we distinguish between the two? So when we look at somebody from the outside and, and they're having this level of anticipation, what are some of the ways that we can, as an observer, figure out, is this uh, on the positive end of anticipation or is this person having kind of this negative anticipatory experience? Oh, I was about to say, what if the person is really good at, you know, masking or not showing their emotions? And so, you know, they appear, you know, neutral or happy, but inside they're actually having anxiety with something that's coming up that they're thinking about, but they're not outwardly showing behaviors. Um, And from like the biological side, you can't really... There's the fast heart rate and the sweating, but then you you can't look at that if you're a bystander or just an observer, you would have to go and take their pulse or, you know, measure their, their resting, um, breathing rate or, you know, look at their, their sweat. Yeah, this makes me think of um, Rocky Horror Picture Show when Dr. Frankenfurter says, I see you shiver with Antissa. 
participation, you know, you can see, you know, that was, was a fun example and everybody in their <laughs> mind who've seen Rocky Horror, they're going, say it, say it. Um, so, you know, there's that observable shiver, you know, or that biological response that is presented, but then how do we categorize it? So Nishay, what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Michelle, actually that first part of the answer definitely, I feel like that describes me. I think I'm shocked when people tell me like the way they perceive me on a daily basis. They always tell me I seem so confident and this is that. And I'm just like, you do not want to know what's going on in my head. <laughs> like, I like the duck on the pond. <laughs> no, the feet are I, going, but on the surface, it looks like everything's calm. Yes. I think I've mastered the poker face because, um, you know, I like to feel like I have that sense of control, at least over myself, because I don't have control over pretty much anything outside of me. I think it's tricky when we try to um, uh, have a sort of like universal or generalized way of looking at these type of measures for different people because we are so different and in different circumstances because I'm the type of person, I have an anticipation and anxiety for traveling as well, but even the negative is almost positive for me because I love traveling that much. I love packing. I love going to the airport. I love security. I love it oh my all. Goodness. <laughs> when I'm like, it, it's like, I don't know, it gives me a different kind of rush. And I love every moment of it, even like those little negative parts, like delays and <laughs> so I'm hearing a lot of this kind of preparation and being ready for something or like knowing what's to come. I want to give go back to the idea of an anticipatory set in education because I know you've all had experience as students but some also as instructors in your programs and in the kind of um, the elementary and secondary so the k-12 space we hear about uh, anticipatory sets in the classroom and there's a website uh, the cult of pedagogy and they define it as a brief portion of a lesson given at the very beginning to get students attention activate prior knowledge and prepare them for the day's learning so as an instructor if i'm really looking to kind of prime the schemas so to speak of, of my students and make sure that they're attending to what's to come and prepared for that how do i gauge whether or not that they are prepared or in this uh in my anticipatory set had the proper effect. How do, I, how do I know that without asking each one, are you ready for today? Are you ready? So, so what would you look for? Or what would you expect uh, to be the response to be able to move forward in that lesson? I guess reading the body language for one, like I, I guess the grade depends too, because I taught English as a second language. And so that was like kindergarten, elementary school. Um, I would say like the sort of eyes front, like posture, just those type, types of things that looks like, you know, I'm paying attention. But when you get to high school and uh, greater, uh, you'll see more and more phones out. And uh, I've even had girls at the desk with like mirrors and vanity sets, <laughs> like it's, it's a different thing. So you can never really tell and they are listening though, because I'll ask them a question and they were listening, oddly enough. Well, I'd say it's, you know, eye contact and, and body language are huge. To, to Michelle's point, you don't know what any individuals, how they'll react in, in given situations, unless you've got an experience with them and you can say, oh, this is deviating from their baseline, um, right? And maybe those things are cultural or maybe not. But for me, the thing I tend to look for is something like eye contact, uh, nodding in, a, in agreement. And, and and that's how I how I think that I can tell if people are, are paying attention to me. But maybe I'm wrong with some people. Maybe they can hear just, <laughs> maybe they can hear just fine with their headphones on. And there's some people who like, who kind of like to look active, they'll be nodding in agreement, but not listen to anything you're saying. <laughs> I get that too. Kind of going back to the beginning 
on before this was recorded on sorry to call you out Tommy how he was racing and saying you know can someone send me a document what oh, if we look busted. at here we go sorry I really have <laughs> to bring it out. out I I, I, no, it's I not. think it's important what if we look at those who are not and anticipating who are not ready and we can also be able to gauge you know how many people are ready so looking at the opposite side of the Mm. spectrum too I do think it's important because maybe those who aren't ready or you know are scrambling um no offense sorry Tommy (laughs) (laughs) I keep apologizing but that can also be be a gauge too you know if so many people are, you know, ruffling in their their bags looking for their notebooks or, you know, trying to find a pen or, you know, maybe half the class isn't even there. Um, maybe <laughs> they're still, you know, mm-hmm. if I'm thinking about college people being late all the time, mm-hmm. maybe that shows, you know, they're not anticipating as much as those in the front ready to write. So I, I think where I've gleaned a couple of interesting hallmarks of when we're trying to measure something that seems like it's challenging to measure and particularly those constructs that aren't always clearly observable. If we look to what we would expect to see when it's there versus what we expect to see when it's not, and what are the differences there? That's that's a key way of starting to define what does our measure really look like versus how do we distinguish um, similar other emotions or feelings. But another one is the multiple measures, that it's not always one indicator that's going to tell us the true situation. So just because you have eye contact with me doesn't mean that you're ready to learn or in this um, proper state of anticipation or readiness. You know, there, we have to look at all some other clues there and maybe some even some verbal cues from uh, students in this case. So I think that's important when we're dealing with these constructs that are hard to define or hard to observe, you know, what else is there, what isn't there, and then what is in that kind of context of each uh, clue that we're receiving in order for us to make the most accurate decisions. Yeah, we definitely need a lot more data than just one point. You know, if you go in saying, I'm looking for eye contact, we're gonna miss all those people who um, don't make eye contact as, as a regular habit. Um, so maybe coming up with other ways of, of measuring the same exact thing, but from a different angle. I know in sometimes like uh, elementary school too, that the teacher will have like a sort of like three point um, like system or daily thing they do where like, if you're ready, uh, put your right hand up. If you're ready, do this, like to get them engaged and to mm-hmm. get everyone on the same page for those who might not be um, ready as soon as they walk in the door. And that's a good point, because as we get into data collection and talk about developing measures of about something, whether it is an, an assessment instrument, whether it's a survey, whether they're you know, interview questions, you know, what are those quick ways that we can get at these hard to see constructs? Something like anticipation, something like readiness to learn, something like engagement that we'll talk about in, in a future podcast episode. But what are some ways that we can quickly measure that? And some of them might require some thinking, some of them might require some feeling or just some quick response to our a question. So that really leads into you know, methods of data collection. If we can define it, what we're looking for, what we're not looking for, then we can really set up our questions to get at what we're looking to measure. Is there anything that you want to share about anticipation as a final thought? 
Well, I'll say that I think I've learned a little bit about it myself today, about anticipation and how I anticipate. I'm not sure why I went to the most negative thing I could think of. <laughs> but um, there, yeah, there is a lot of positive anticipation that I have. And I think if I could add one more thing, it seems to, in my life, it seems to be a way that I regulate, that if I'm anticipating something, it, then I change my behavior and try to try to, uh, to calm myself down in some way, whether that's through preparation or just taking a deep breath and saying, you know, it'll be all right. I'll also add to just for the positive anticipation. I think it can be like sometimes exciting. It gives you something to look forward to when you're always anticipating that sort of next thing and you get to plan for it. Start, you know, it's kind of like a whole process if you want it to be. And so again, just sort of preparing best you can for those challenges, but being um, also open to the unexpected. I want to add a fun fact. <laughs> so anticipation is actually a, a genetic term that is frequently used. And when I learned it, it's basically the, the concept that a certain genetic disease, um, the, the best example is Huntington's. So the signs and the symptoms will become more severe and will appear at an earlier age than the previous generation. So like if the dad has Huntington's, he has mild symptoms and it appears at age 50, most people anticipate that the son who has Huntington's will have, you know, more severe symptoms than the dad and will appear younger than 50 at like age 48. And it keeps going and going and going. So that's how, that's what I thought when I saw initially the word anticipation. <laughs> and all of the examples today really lend itself to that aspect of, you know, predicting a future event and what is your reaction, whether it's a, a, a cognitive or an affective reaction to that future event. And then how does that present itself so that others are aware of what your perspective is in anticipation or in preparation um, of that future event? So I think we really kind of went around and had some great examples of what that might be and what might some of the challenges be in trying to measure that when we can't always directly observe it. So with that, thank you all for your input today in our first episode. Thanks, team. Thanks. This was fun. Of course. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Yeah. Today, we explored the concept of anticipation prior to conducting any outside research. So here are three takeaways so you can say, I did it. One, determine if your construct can be viewed in opposite ways. Michelle, Nache, and Tommy helped us with that today. Two, identify how you can measure the construct without asking directly. We discussed various situations and how they would look from an outside observer. Three, document how others interpret the construct. That would be our next step. Join us next week for a constructive chat about another cryptic concept because you can measure anything. <laughs>